Amen. Thank you, brother. I'm excited to be here this morning uh, to ask for your prayers as we turn to the Word of God. I'd like us to begin in Philippians, the second chapter. Um, as we look at a passage with which many of you are familiar, that is essentially describing one of the most crucial elements of the way that Jesus lived his life while here on earth. Um, and there are, many, there are many good examples that I've encountered in my life that illustrate to me how I ought to live as a child of God, as a disciple of Christ. I've encountered many good examples. I've met many wonderful people. But even still, I mean, even for the rest of my life, the best example that we will have and how to live in the kingdom of God and the church of God is found in the life of Jesus Christ. Um, so there's no more important person from whom we can learn. There is no more beneficial life which we can examine. And there's no more impactful death that we will observe than that of Jesus Christ. Uh, and in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, we read about Christ's servanthood and the way in which he served, beginning in verse 1. If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Now listen carefully. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem each other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Jesus Christ, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So again, we are receiving here a description of one of the most com important components of Jesus' status as Christ, his humility as a servant. And one of the incredible things that Christ did during his time upon this earth was he became a servant. Now, it's one thing for one of us to take upon ourselves the form of a servant. It's one thing as a person and a group of people who Jesus and the scriptures declare as sinful, beyond redemption without Christ, to take upon ourselves the form of a servant. But remember who Christ is. We're told that he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That is to say, throughout his ministry, when he declared that he was equal with God, that was a perfectly accurate statement. Jesus Christ was God, and he was equal with God. But even in that moment, even in those moments when he declared himself openly to the world as being equal with God, as being God in the flesh... He still humbled himself and took upon himself the form of a servant. That is to say, he lived a life of service. And yes, he made himself subservient to the will of God. He obeyed the will of God, as we read in Hebrews chapter 5. But even as God, he came to serve those less 
than himself. And that's part of the mystery of God revealed in the flesh in Jesus Christ. And we're told to do the same thing. And this is a hard concept for us to grasp, and it's even a harder thing for us to do. Because we're told how we're supposed to do it in verse 3. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem each other better than themselves. So our service is never to be an attempt to bolster our own reputation. And that's a really hard, again, concept for us to grasp. Grasp Matthew, or Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 1, Take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. So Jesus, he's dealing with a, a common circumstance of service in which people gave their alms with the ultimate intent of bolstering their reputation of generosity in the temple. So this is a, a simplified version of how alms worked during this time. Uh, people would come into the synagogue. There would be a massive line stretching throughout the synagogue. And as people came through the synagogue during the time of worship, they would take their contributions to the temple and they would either give them to the priest or perhaps place them in some kind of bowl. And this could be done in a number of ways. At this time, the political rulers and the, the elite of the temple, they would come through the synagogue and they would make a great public show of these alms that they would donate to the temple. Apparently from Jesus' passage, some of them even had their followers with them to announce that they were about to give to the temple. And Jesus, he openly addresses this and he says, do you think these people are really giving to the church out of an attitude of servanthood and generosity? No, they're simply doing so so that those around them would look upon them and consider them more righteous because of what they gave to the temple. And Jesus, he looks at those people and he says, they have their reward, but it's not the reward of your Father which is in heaven. If you wish to gain the attention of your Father which is in heaven, you can't give your alms or righteousness or servants in public. You must do it in secret. And it must be done so secretly that your left hand won't even know what your right hand's doing. So as the right hand, Jesus is saying, as the right hand of these men took money from their pockets and gave it to the priest, they were to do it so secretly that their left hand didn't even know that the right hand was about to give money to the cause of the temple. That's how secretive Jesus, and, and that's how secretive Jesus asked these people to be. He says, don't, don't give for the sake of your reputation. Give for the sake of the kingdom of God. This is what Christ rewards. So back to Philippians 2. That corresponds with verse 3 that tells us we're not to do anything in strife or vainglory. But we're to serve in lowliness of mind. So whenever we're engaged in an act of service, we're to do it in such a way that often our left hand doesn't even know what our right hand doeth. And that's hard to do for a number of ways. First, 
Human beings love to declare their righteousness to the world. You know, there's no easier way for a charity to, to garner more donations than to start publishing all the donations they receive in, uh, in magazines. You know, you walk through Walmart and you will see, you know, as, you, as you're about to check out, well, so-and-so gave this multi-million dollar, dollar donation to this specific charity. That's one way that charities encourage donations to their cause because people love to see that. People love their righteousness and their service declared to the world. And I do as well, and it's a struggle for me to serve when I realize that I will receive no recognition for it. You know, because when we serve and we receive no recognition, we rapidly grow discouraged. And as a side note, the spiritual gift of encouragement in the church is the way that that discouragement is counteracted. If you're gifted with the spiritual gift of encouragement, say part of your responsibility in the church is to look for those that serve in secret and to acknowledge them and thank them often publicly. And a servant should never require that type of recognition, but we're imperfect. We're flawed, we're weak. And when we grow discouraged in our service that's often done in secret, that encouragement can help us to continue our work. In lowliness of mind, as we serve in verse 3, we're to esteem others better than ourselves. That's also an incredibly difficult principle. If you esteem others better than yourselves, often there's no type of worldly gain associated with that. You know, the best way to grow wealthy and powerful in our economy is to be self-interested. Now, I'm not saying that's a, that's a, dif- that's a bad thing necessarily, but it's, a different, it's different in the kingdom of God. We have to apply ourselves selflessly to service. In verse 4, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Jesus did not come down to this earth to look upon his own things. He truly came searching and looking upon the things of others. What was the primary purpose for which he came to this world? Well, he came into this world to save his people from their sins. When we're told that Jesus is to be born in Matthew chapter 1, there are two things that we're told. We're told that his name is to be Jesus and that he shall save his people from their sins. That was the will of the Father, the will of the Trinity, which inspired Jesus to take upon himself the form of flesh and to come down to this earth. And then we're told in verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Jesus Christ. So, so far, we're not to serve through strife or vainglory, and we're to look upon the things of others, and then we're to take upon ourselves this mindset, which was also in Jesus. In verse 6, again, it's one thing for one of us to serve, but it's another thing for the begotten Son of God to serve us. It may be one thing for us to serve in the church, for us to serve each other. But it's an entirely another thing for Jesus Christ to come and serve us. Jesus Christ, he made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant. The best servants are often those who are mighty. You know, perhaps perhaps they're intelligent. Perhaps they're granted with knowledge. Perhaps they're granted with resources. Perhaps they're granted with any number of wonderful things. But they take those things and they make themselves of no reputation. And they use the resources which they are given to serve in the kingdom of God. And yet they do so in secret. Again, in such a way that their left hand doesn't know what their right hand doeth. 
You know, because a servant serves with humility, a servant serves without concern for their reputation, without concern for strife, without concern for vainglory, but they also serve in such a way that their life embodies sacrifice. And this is what Christ is doing in verses 7 and 8. He makes himself of no reputation. He takes upon himself the form of a servant, and he's made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. It was a humbling act for Jesus to come down as the Son of God and die upon the cross. That's the the primary message of this verse. You know, there's a lot of confusing uh, scripture, which we don't entirely know the meaning of, that's, that's debated widely in relation to this verse. And we're told that Jesus humbled, humbled himself. He became obedient. What entirely does that mean? Well, in essence, it's meaning this, that it was simply humbling for such the mighty Son of God to come down and walk upon this earth as the man that he was and die upon the cross. And that, was, and that is what he did in a figurative sense. It doesn't matter how mighty we are. It doesn't matter what we've accomplished in this world. It doesn't matter the reputation that we may have. It doesn't matter the strife or vainglory that may preoccupy our minds. We are to vote ourselves to lives of sacrifice in the kingdom of God. And it's often a life that's not widely recognized. It's not a life that bolsters our reputation. It's not a life which serves to garner worldly riches to our name here in this world. It is a life of sacrifice, and that's what Christ did here upon this earth. You know, but even in in that moment, when we devote ourselves to those type of lives... You know, there's, there's consolation in the church. We encourage ourselves in this joint task that we are all engaged in. That's where verses 1 and 2 uh, factor into this, this account here. If there be any consolation in Christ, if there be any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one Mind. What is the one mind that we are to be of? It is the mind which is of Jesus Christ that we read about in verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. Because this is often, it's a fulfilling task, but it's often a discouraging task. And Paul's telling the, Philippian, the Philippians as a whole, he's saying, Philippian church, you're not undertaking this alone. This is the mind which I ask the whole church to take upon themselves. This is the mind that asks the whole church to encourage themselves in. If there be any fellowship of the Spirit, if there's any bowels of mercies, if there's any spirit of mercy in the church, this is what I ask the church to do. Take upon yourself, Paul is saying, this mind which is in Christ. You know, he tells the disciples something similar in Mark, the eighth chapter. which is a passage that I've revisited frequently over the last year. We've also mentioned before in prior messages here at Vestavia, told in verse 34 that whosoever will come after me is to deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospel's, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he gain the world and he lose his own soul? Now Jesus, he's, he's recounting this idea that in the kingdom of God, you have to be willing to sacrifice all that is yours for the sake of this, this dedication to service. And if you're willing to do that, there is a life available to the person that is willing to sacrifice that they will find nowhere else. You know, there's a life available to the child of God that interacts in the kingdom of God with an attitude with no concern for their reputation, with no concern for strife or vainglory that gives to the kingdom of God that it is available nowhere else. And it is a life which caters directly to the needs of the soul, the needs of the born-again spirit. And the child of God, whether they realize it or not, is not going to be happy elsewhere. For what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and then lose his own soul? Well, part of the way that we retain our souls in the kingdom of God is to serve as is recounted to us in Philippians chapter 2. Part of the way that we do that is found within Philippians chapter 2. You know, so a servant operates and, and serves with humility. A servant, they labor selflessly. Their life embodies sacrifice. And ultimately, they have no concern or really care for the things of this life. Let's, let's look in Matthew chapter 6. I love the balanced perspective that Jesus Christ has towards this particular issue. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 25, we're told, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body more than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they toil not, neither did they spin, and yet I say unto you that Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today and tomorrow is, today is and tomorrow is cast in the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we clothe? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. So Christ fully recognizes that even in this time and in the task of service to which we've been appointed, we have need of earthly things. He says, let, don't let that be your ultimate concern. Let your ultimate be concern be with the things of the kingdom of God. Be with service. Be with selfless service in the kingdom of God. And the things of this earth, they will be provided to you by God. And how is this proved to us? 
Well, Matthew says, or Jesus says, and it's recounted to us by Matthew, well, look at the birds of the air. Do you see them so concerned with the things of this earth that they trouble themselves with worry and concern? No, they don't sow. They don't reap. Yet your heavenly Father provides their needs. Look at the grass of the earth. Is there anything more lowly than the grass of this earth? You know, the most widely grown product across the globe is grass. If there's anything, if there's anything that's grown most commonly across the world, it's grass. Now, unfortunately, you know, we can't eat grass. You know, we can't, we can't sow grass and then make it into some kind of product that we can consume most of the time. At least, I don't enjoy eating grass. Anyway, um, but it's still the most widely grown product across the earth, the most widely grown crop. And Matthew says, look at that. Look at the grass. Today it's growing. Tomorrow it's cut down and it's thrown into the oven for warmth. Yet it grows. Yet it continues to grow and prosper. How much more so are children of God, who Jesus Christ shed his blood for, how much better are they than the grass of this earth and the birds of the air? Jesus' answer is contained within that rhetorical question. You all... Children of God are much better than the grass of this earth. You're much better than the birds of the air. And in the same way which the Father provides for the birds and provides for the grass, he will provide for the earthly needs of his children. That doesn't always manifest itself in the way that we would want it to. And I've said this before and I'll say it again because it's a lesson that I'm trying to teach myself. I wish part of the equation of Christian discipleship was an incredibly prosperous and wealthy life here in this world. But you look at Paul as he recounts his life, and Paul reminds us, well, the life of the disciple isn't always like that. Because Christ didn't embody that life. Christ says, I don't, I, I'm as the fox of the earth. I don't have a place to lay my head. I don't have a consistent home which I return to each night to rest and arise revitalize the next day. Christ didn't have that. He wandered about the land of Israel. Sometimes accepted and welcomed, sometimes rejected by those that he met. And even if we're called to that life, that life is sufficient. Now, I'm here today to tell you and rejoice with you that most of us are not in this time. We are blessed beyond measure by the things that we have both here in this country and yes, even across the world, there are those that, are, that still suffer in poverty. We're not necessarily called to that life as of now. But Christ was called as a man who was despised. He was rejected of men. He was impoverished. He didn't have a steady, consistent, worldly occupation. He went about ministering and serving those less than himself. And yet the Father tells us, even those that are called to such a life, the Heavenly Father provides for their needs. Now as we recap and close, let's return back to Philippians, the second chapter. Verses 1 and 2 tell us that the church is to, as a body, is to encourage each and every member in their task of discipleship and service. Verses 3 and 4 tell us how we are to serve and our mindset in the church. Don't take any thought for strife or vainglory. 
but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem each other better than themselves. What mentality are we to adopt in the church? We're to adopt the same mind that Christ adopted as he was here upon this earth. It was a life in which he, as mighty as he was, Christ is the mightiest of us all. And this is, the, this is another difficult principle of the church. It doesn't matter how mighty any of us are. None of us are ever too good to serve in the kingdom of God. If service was not too lowly for Christ, it's not too lowly for any of us. Because we're told as a consequence of Christ's willingness to dedicate himself to service, we're told in verse 9 that God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That in the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I would challenge us this morning to... Let this mind be in you, uh, which was also in Jesus Christ. Thank you for your time.